Hi, welcome to season four of the Aced It podcast, where we translate science into sense. So you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, coming to you from Sam Houston State University in Texas, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. Aced It is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out our website, jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. Today, we explore the idea of peer recovery support. While the key shared characteristic that binds all types of peer support is lived experience with a substance use disorder, the idea of peer recovery support can embrace a wide swath of activities and philosophies, ranging from former injection drug users helping to spread the word about bleaching needles, to people in 12-step recovery programs proselytizing the gospel of abstinence and Jesus Christ. So what is the history, training, certification processes, and the role of peer recovery support specialists working at different stages of active use and recovery? In their 2022 narrative review, Aaron Stack and six public health colleagues explored these questions, as well as the impact of peer recovery support specialists in different settings, including community, hospitals, jails and prisons, and treatment and recovery agencies. Stack and colleagues explain that peer-related services are nothing new and have been integrated into healthcare and community settings for over 150 years. Peer-related recovery services focused on substance use disorders emerged through mutual aid groups in the 19th century and was solidified in the 20th century with the start of 12-step programs. Aligning themselves with the rise of disability rights activists and their, quote, nothing about us without us, quote, unquote, mantra, peer recovery support specialists became a catalyst for empowerment, inclusivity, and social justice in substance use treatment. The appeal is rooted in a shared experience, which often involves shame, despair, and hopelessness. Today, peer recovery support specialists work in lots of different settings, doing many different things. In all settings, their primary responsibility is to provide hope, act as an ally and confidant, motivate, model behavior, offer honesty, support decision-making, navigate resources, and advocate. So, what does the training look like to be a professional peer? Certification programs were initially established to meet Medicaid reimbursement criteria, This, in turn, spurred states to develop certification policies. While this was a hodgepodge approach with no national standards, typical requirements included some minimum amount of time in recovery, which typically ranges from one to three years, passing a criminal background check, completing training courses ranging from 40 to 80 hours, passing a code of ethics review, passing a national exam, completing continuing education credits, and renewing one certificate after some specified amount of time, typically every two years. What peer recovery support specialists do is often dictated by where they are working, though across settings, common implementation challenges arise. These challenges include unclear roles, limited financial support, inconsistent boundaries, philosophical differences between the organization and the peer model, and service area coverage. System-level challenges include policies that favor punitive responses to drug use and the stigmatization of drug use, and those who work with people with drug use problems. 
At the organizational level, challenges include attitudes, policies, and programs that exclude peer specialists, insufficient training for peer specialists, and not valuing lived experience in decision-making. And finally, at the individual level, challenges include fluctuations in the availability of peer workforce due to arrest, return to use, or fear of return to use and low salaries. The research on peer recovery support is growing and emerging findings are promising, but varied. In each setting, there are promising studies as well as studies that show no or unclear effects. In community settings, peer recovery support specialists use harm reduction approaches for people in active use. Here, they might encourage positive change based on a person's goals. They may assist with daily life needs like accessing food, housing, and health care. And they may provide harm reduction services like providing naloxone, fentanyl education and testing strips, and sterile needleworks. Preliminary studies show positive impacts on reducing risky use behavior, making people feel safer, and linking individuals to treatment. People who use drugs also express a strong preference for peer recovery support specialists over clinicians in medical settings. To that point, peers may also work in hospital settings, where they're typically part of a larger care team. Here, they might help connect a patient with medication for opioid use disorder or other types of substance use treatment. They also provide support to individuals during treatment of medical and surgical complications related to substance use disorders. They can translate information between people and medical providers and help overcome historical mistrust of the medical community. And it's not just helpful for patients. It can also relieve stress on healthcare providers by facilitating communication, offering insights that go beyond the provider's formal education and life experiences, and help with de-escalating conflicts. More broadly, peers can help shift the culture of a healthcare system, though it should also be noted that working in these rigid professional structures with inconsistent staff assignments and facing intense and fast-paced work with high patient demand can also make peers vulnerable to discomfort, discrimination, stress, and burnout. Like community settings, the early research is promising. It has increased engagement with follow-up visits, and engagement with prevention training and naloxone education. It shows promise for increasing the number of treatment days and shortening time to next appointment. And it's been beneficial for some peers who have gained professional experience from working in a hospital environment. Peers work in jails and prisons also, and here they have a unique responsibility to support community reentry and adhere to community corrections requirements. Reentry after incarceration is an overwhelming situation to navigate. Peers working in these settings typically have incarceration experience and can help motivate and build rapport with people. Their main focus is typically connecting people with treatment and recovery services. They may conduct in-reach with people who are close to release, and they may provide transportation at release to get individuals where they need to be. Again, studies are in the nascent stage, but promising. Separate studies have demonstrated satisfaction with peer services, decreased rates for emergency room use post-release, decreased substance use and recidivism, and increased perceptions of self-efficacy and social support. Peers who work in treatment and recovery aim to help people stay engaged in treatment and motivated. Sometimes peers are integrated into case management teams. Here again, we see promising studies with some methodological weakness. Early studies have reported a range of promising outcomes, such as decreased substance use, increased housing stability, and decreased criminal charges. 
As noted earlier, despite the promise of peers, lots of considerations remain. Like every other human service worker, peers need an appropriate and formal supervisory system that can help grow their skills and maintain their self-care. A good model of supervision would include weekly check-ins to review caseloads and interactions. Compassion fatigue and burnout should be addressed, either within the supervision model or in some other way. The often Byzantine reimbursement procedures also have negatively impacted the work of peers, and relatedly, they often just aren't paid enough and are often asked to take on ever-growing roles and responsibilities. Stack and Colleagues leaves us with lots of recommendations. These include establishing national peer recovery support specialty certification standards that define competencies, are tailored by service settings, and shorten the look-back periods of criminal background checks. They recommend establishing supervision standards rooted in recovery-centered approaches rather than billing-centered approaches. And professional development opportunities that continue to grow peers' subject knowledge and improve their self-care techniques. And finally, they recommend ongoing advocacy to nurture the field and address stigma and discrimination. Peer recovery supports offer a unique avenue to help those impacted by substance use disorder. As long as there have been sorrows, there have been those who have been there. In the wise words of Benny King, quote, I just might have a problem that you'll understand. We all need somebody to lean on, end quote. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.gmuace.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACED is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACED.